The vegetation dried up, the trees dried up, and would bring forth no fresh shoots. The pastures dried up, the springs dried up. The great sun god arranged for a feast and invited the thousand gods. They ate, but they did not satisfy their hunger. They drank, but they did not quench their thirst. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. Hello, my name is Jojo. I'm Alex's friend. And we are reading a Hittite myth about the disappearance of the god Telepinu. This is Albrecht Goethe's translation. So the Hittites were an empire that controlled most of Anatolia and parts of northern Syria in the late Bronze Age, between about 1600 and 1200 BCE. Essentially, the Hittites ruled the same area we'll be looking at today, except six to 8,000 years later. So our main character, Telepinu, is in a huff. Telepinu is in such a hurry to leave that he puts his right shoe on his left foot and vice versa, and leaves the land of the gods for the uninhabited wilderness. And when he leaves, he takes away with him grain farming, animal reproduction, and agricultural wealth. So the tablet is damaged and the entire beginning of the story is missing. So we don't know exactly why Telepinu is angry. Context seems to indicate that he's mad at his dad, Tarhuna, king of the gods. Makes sense. Makes sense. If you're mad at your parents, you just take all their nice things and fuck off. So we return to a world in crisis. Mist seized the windows. Smoke seized the house. In the fireplace, the logs were stifled. At the altar, the gods were stifled. In the fold, the sheep were stifled. In the stable, the cattle were stifled. The sheep neglected its lamb. The cow neglected its calf. Telepinu walked away and took grain, animal fecundity, luxuriance, growth, and abundance to the meadow, the steppes. Telepinu went into the moor and blended with the moor. Over him, the halenzu plant grew. Therefore, barley and wheat no longer ripened. Cattle, sheep, and humans no longer became pregnant. And those already pregnant could not give birth. So regardless of what exactly pissed him off, we see a crisis on Earth. Livestock can no longer breed, crops are dying in the field, and humans are starving. Also, humans are unable to give birth because of the gods' actions, just like in episode one, when Enlil punished humanity with the Asaku demon. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the gods hold a feast, but it doesn't satisfy their hunger. The gods are starving because they need humans to sacrifice food for them. Mm, that is unfortunate. I mean, the gods could probably learn to, like, you know, wield a sickle. Or did he take it away from the gods as well? I mean, that's, I think, the thing is that ideology of not only the Hittites, but also the gods themselves. This really sounds a lot to me like the um, the one about the grasshopper and the ants, you know? <laughs> but, like, crossed exactly. with a bug's life where the grasshoppers are kind of mean and very dependent on the ants. I don't know. No, yeah, I mean, it is fun to see how, you know, the gods in mythology kind of map onto the same social roles as, like, aristocrats. Like, you know, they demand to be fed and they will definitely starve. No one feeds them, but they refuse to do any work. Yeah, I guess I never really thought of it that way. So as I mentioned, Telepinu's father is Tarhuna, the storm god and the king of the gods. So Tarhuna sends an eagle to find Telepinu. That eagle searches every high mountain, the deep valleys and the watery depths, but he can't find him. Whereas Hanahana, the mother of all gods, worries her children will starve. So instead of an eagle, she wants to send a bee. And Tarhuna objects. How could a bee possibly succeed where an eagle couldn't? Yeah, like, I kind of disagree with Tarhuna's objection, like, <laughs> off a little bit. Different perspectives offer different information, man. Like, I don't know, that's kind of dumb. Yeah. Sorry, that's just my, like, opinion. No, that's very fair, and I think you'll be proven right. I hope so. So, what's this about Hanahana and bees? Yeah, so, again, relevant to what we're going to talk about in episode 29. The Hittites were this kind of, you know, patriarchal, Indo-European-speaking people that showed up to Anatolia sometime in the neighborhood of 2000 BC, maybe earlier. And the Hattian, like indigenous culture, shows traces of this kind of matrilineal woman-focused mythology and ideology and social organization that leaves kind of an interesting trace so that uniquely among Indo-European-speaking peoples, you know, so in, in the Hittite royal house, you know, the male king is important and he's the king. But there's another figure, the oldest living woman in the royal family. So either the king's mother or the king's wife, depending on who's alive. Never the king's grandma. She's she's <laughs> long dead. You know, this kind of leftover ceremonial authoritative role for a royal woman to hold. So it's interesting in the context of a matrilineal society, or at least a society that used to be matrilineal, that, you know, even when Tarhun, the male thunder god, sends his mighty eagle to find his son and fails, 
you know, Hanahana sends her tiny, weak creature, but a creature who interacts with nature by pollinating it and by, you know, speeding along the process of plant reproduction instead of by, you know, destroying small animals. Mm-hmm. You know, this bee searches to kind of mild, pleasant, freshwater environments that would be most amenable to human life. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, why send your eagle to, to find all of the hard shit? Why would your kid go someplace where life would be hard? That is a very good question. Especially if he's been just like a baby raised at home his whole life. Right. He would probably go someplace with a lot of comforts. And this bee finds Telepinu asleep in a marsh. So the bee stings him awake and pisses him off even more. Well, yeah. Well, why would Telepinu go to really harsh landscapes if he was trying to like escape and leave? Isn't that all anybody really wants is like their own peace? Like, like, is he like a hunting type of guy? Like, does his dad know him well? That's a very good question. Because, because like... You should try to think like the person that you're hunting down, right? Or like the person that you're trying to track, I suppose, is a better way to say it. Because now hunting has meaning. And by that, I just kind of mean like, this just doesn't seem like very good like tracking skills on (laughs) Tarhuna's part. I mean, that's a fair point. Just like automatically thinking that he's going to be doing poorly and like needing to hunt and go to harsh environments. So in other words, Tarhuna, the king of heaven in a patriarchal society, is the mighty god of war and thunder. And he sent the mightiest hunter in the sky to scour the highest highs and the lowest lows, the most inaccessible landscapes. And this turned out to be a total failure. Whereas Hanahana sends a tiny weak creature that interacts with nature by pollinating that is helping other species to reproduce, not by killing. Hanahana is a Hittite name, like etymologically, mm-hmm. you know, a name in the Hittite language. But the goddess herself is originally a Hurrian goddess. So the late Bronze Age kingdom of the Hittites incorporated not only their like their own Hittite mythology, but also this Hurrian mythology from this unrelated people and the Hattian mythology of the locals that were there when the Hittites showed up. So the Hittites are actually our best source for preserving Hurrian mythology because they wrote it down even when the Hurrians themselves in Syria didn't. Very reminiscent of a familiar story where it's like the older crowd say about the younger generation, like, why are they writing all this stuff down? Just tell it orally like we have for thousands of years. And it's like, maybe there's something worth doing in writing something down. I'm thinking especially of like the Druids in like Roman era Europe, you know, they had a very Mm -hmm. complex oral tradition and, you know, to be a new Druid, you had to spend years and years and years memorizing all these stories and all this oral tradition that they taught you. And because they had a specific rule against writing it all down, they didn't write it down. And now we don't know it. Yeah. A combination of, you know, Roman imperialism and then Christianity means that now we no longer have that information. Oh, well. Yeah. Did they want us to not have that information? Was that their intention? Well, that's the tricky part. Who's to say? Because like in their original context... They wanted themselves to keep the information and they didn't want to share it with just like some schmuck, some other Celt who's not a druid. That makes sense. And some schmuck might be historians of the future. No, exactly. Especially because the first quote unquote historian we have to write about the people of Gaul is Julius Caesar, who was actively in the process of destroying their society. Yeah, he doesn't seem super motivated to write anything down. No, exactly. Or write down their stories specifically anyway. So I kind of don't blame them for not wanting the Romans to know everything about their millennia of religious tradition. But even though the bee has found Telepinu, the world is still in crisis. The gods are still starving. The humans are still facing extinction. So stay tuned for part two. But first, today is going to be part two on the pre-pottery Neolithic in southeastern Anatolia. We're going to be covering the period between about 9600 and 7000 BCE in the mountain valleys of the southeastern Taurus Mountains, near the sources of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Last time we talked about einkorn and emmer wheat, and the fact that genetic evidence points to this region as the place where cereals were first domesticated. Today we're going to talk about legumes, which were domesticated in the same place around the same time. We're also going to have a look at three villages in this region, their funerary practices, their public buildings, and their relationships with various animals. But first, we're going to look at the concept of the Fertile Crescent, which I've already been throwing around. It's been used differently by different people. Essentially, I'm using it in this season to apply to the dry farming region where agriculture developed, not including Egypt and not including southern Mesopotamia. So, during the early Neolithic, agriculture spread across an arc-shaped area of land, including Syro-Palestine in the west, Kurdistan in the north, and West Iran in the east. You've probably heard the term Fertile Crescent. It was coined in 1914 by old-timey archaeologist James Breasted. He included Syro-Palestine in the west, Kurdistan in the north, and southern Iraq, or southern Mesopotamia, or lower Mesopotamia, or the Tigris-Euphrates alluvial plain in the east. He didn't include Egypt, and he did not include Iran. So in other words, the term Fertile Crescent originally described the first complex agricultural societies starting in the mid-3000s, southern Mesopotamia, was the most urbanized region in the Near East. We'll see the first writing, the first literature, and so on, all come from that region. But sometimes you'll see a map of the Fertile Crescent that includes the extent of complex agricultural society around 2500 BC, which includes all of James Breasted's Crescent, and also Egypt, 
which kind of makes sense because why exclude the big agricultural society right next to the shape you're drawing? But in the context of the pre-pottery Neolithic B, the Fertile Crescent includes societies adopting Neolithic domestication practices, and Iran was more focused on herding than farming, but they did adopt farming practices and they were in contact with the rest of the Fertile Crescent. This podcast is not about Egypt. There's already a much better podcast about Ferrani Egypt called the History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. So in other words, in the way I'm using it in this podcast, the Fertile Crescent refers to an arc-shaped area where it rains enough to farm without irrigation. So again, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, the southern edge of the Taurus Mountains, and the western edge of the Zagros Mountains. But this arc-shaped area is going to be the core of pre-pottery Neolithic B settlement. So if you know what this podcast is building towards, you might be asking, what about that southern Mesopotamian alluvial plain? You know, obviously, what about Sumer and Babylonia and so on? They have infinite water and they have infinite alluvial soil. And as we'll see, they'll use that to grow infinite grain. So why not talk about them? And the answer is that this region, southern Mesopotamia, the Tigris-Euphrates alluvial plain, is not settled during the early Neolithic. Or if it is, we don't have any evidence to people living there. It was not part of the first wave of agricultural revolution, and we have no evidence of human habitation there until the mid-6000s BCE. So there's a few different reasons why we have not found any evidence of people living here. Of course, one possibility is that there were no people there. It's also likely that if there were people living here, evidence of their occupation is buried too far under alluvial soil, making it impossible to find early sites from the surface. Tel El Ueli is one of the earliest settlements in this region, and the earliest levels at that site are below the modern water table. So it would be hugely labor-intensive to try to excavate what is currently underwater. Obviously, there's no pottery during the pre-pottery Neolithic, which leaves fewer artifacts to find in the first place. Whoever's living there probably used lots of organic materials to make tools, which would have decomposed. And also, changing shorelines and changing river courses would put some villages under the Persian Gulf and some villages far away from modern rivers, so we wouldn't think to look there. And the main obstacle to settlement during the early Neolithic is the fact that it's this big marshland habitat with a lot of brackish water washing in from the tides. It would be much harder to control the landscape with burning, as they were able to in drier regions, or at least regions that aren't underwater. In order to control, redirect, and store this water, it'll take new irrigation methods that won't be invented until after 7000 BCE. So we're actually going to talk about that in episode 10. So, you know, long story short, it's too labor-intensive to clear this land for agriculture at this point. So if there are people living here, they're probably foraging peoples using mostly organic materials to make tools, and we have no evidence of what they were doing. So moving to these highland valleys that we've been talking about since last episode. As I mentioned, in these highland valleys, you get rain and you get alluvial soil washing down the sides of the valley. So you get plenty of fresh water and drainage for free. Obviously, there are lots of benefits of living next to a river. You get fresh water all year round. The river floods annually, resulting in a flat, well-watered area of alluvial soil next to the river. Of course, you can fish in a river, and also animals come to drink the water, and you can hunt those animals. So during this period, a new, warmer, and wetter climate makes experimentation possible. You're no longer risking starvation when you try out new cultivation techniques. So people are probably tinkering with the growing conditions of various grasses. And I mentioned that there's not much physical room for settlements to expand, so we're looking at small settlements bounded by geographical space into individual valleys. And if the village gets too big, it's likely that they send out a couple of families to start an allied village nearby, so as not to overburden local resources and so that you can keep your egalitarian social relations for as long as possible. So obviously, all of these villages need to be near water. You know, even if you don't spend the entire year at your village, you know, you need to drink fresh water every day. So we see villages by inland lakes, or by the shores of the Euphrates, or other tributary rivers, or next to springs that have since dried up. A lot of these sites were much closer to forests than they are today. These forests would have provided sources of timber and firewood, as well as hunting grounds. And as I mentioned back in episode one, the fringes of the forest provide perfect conditions for the kind of large seeded grasses that people rely on, the wild ancestors of wheat and barley and so on. During the pre-pottery Neolithic, we see an increase of microcharcoal in pollen samples, which is evidence of increased burning, so people might be controlling forest and grassland with fire. Now that they've transitioned to eating specific types of grass, you know, fire is a good way to clear out slower growing trees and larger plants and make way for annual grasses that grow quickly. And of course, burning recycles a lot of nutrients back into the soil for these quick growing grasses to use. This provides great conditions for gazelles, who of course can easily outrun a fire and graze on large patches of grass. It's less good news for tortoises who cannot outrun the fire, which is why we see a decrease in tortoise remains in sites around this time. And then back in episode one, I talked about the switch from small grain to large grain grasses. So essentially people switch from eating weeds to eating more wild barley, emmer, and einkorn because these large grain grasses, which are more nutritious and more efficient foraging wise, grow better in this climate. So last episode, we talked about the shift to cultivation. I won't reiterate all of that, except to say that people are gathering seeds from where plants grow in the wild and planting them closer to home in increasingly artificial and increasingly cultivated environments. 
This allows them to grow more food closer to home. It's less labor intensive for the amount of food they get out of it at first. So this allows villages to grow larger and more complex and allows for a greater range of tasks for the people living in these villages. So the village we're going to start with is Halanchemi. This is a small permanent village in southeastern Anatolia. It's near a tributary of the Batman River in the upper Tigris watershed. We're going to be looking at it in the early pre-pottery Neolithic A, or the mid to late 9000s BCE, and already we see some evidence of social complexity. So unlike the upper Euphrates, the pre-pottery Neolithic A diet was not centered on gathered wild grains. Cereals during this period make up less than 10% of wild plants. During the earliest levels, people lived in small houses around 2 meters in diameter, which is a little bit bigger than a camping tent. The walls were made of river pebbles and plaster. But in addition to these private houses, we also see public buildings. So two buildings between five and six meters in diameter. So obviously they're much larger than the other buildings at the site. They also have a different layout. But like Natufian buildings and unlike other houses at the site, the floor is dug down into the ground. So inside these public buildings, we see unique decorations incorporating obsidian and copper ore. One of them has an aurochs head on a wall facing the entrance, aurochs being a wild bull. The other building has sheep skulls and deer antlers. And this is similar to other sites in the region where we see buried aurochs skulls associated with benches in public buildings. So we're going to talk today about Navali Chori. And also in Syria, we see this at Jerf el Amar and Murai Bet. So a 2009 article by Tatiana Kornienko says that all of these buildings, quote, had a specific function and that they were protected by symbols of divine power, end quote. Both of these public buildings have stone benches along their walls, which, like Edgar Beckley Tepe, might have been a gathering place for an entire community, as opposed to a domestic house for a specific family. We see no signs of domestic activities, like grinding grain and so on, except for plaster hards, which might have also been communal for, you know, making meals for everyone. And also at the center of this village, we see an open area around 15 meters across that was in use throughout the entire history of the site. We see river pebbles cracked in fire, which is a way to boil liquid when you don't have pottery. You know, you heat up rocks in a fire and then throw these really hot rocks into, for example, a stone bowl full of liquid to heat up that liquid. We also see lots of animal bones and three sheep skulls laid in a row, which might have marked a meeting place or a location of ritual feasts, or maybe both. We also see stone cookware. So we see bowls with incised art, you know, scenes from nature and animals, as well as geometric patterns. We see stone pestles with handles carved into shapes of animals, not unlike the Natufian knives for gathering wild grain, but also had shapes of animals carved into them. This symbolism was probably relevant to the act of cooking and eating. And speaking of eating, let's talk about pigs. So wild boars are social creatures. Their herds are called sounders. They're native to temperate or subtropical climates, especially oak and pistachio forests in Iran and Anatolia. Boars and pigs are natural omnivores, like dogs, they may have been drawn to people's garbage, both plant and animal remains. Pigs eat a lot more protein than, for example, sheep and goats. This helps them produce massive litters of piglets. Unlike sheep, goats, and cattle, pigs give birth to an entire litter, six to ten piglets at a time, and they can give birth to two to three litters a year. Compare that to cattle and sheep, which average about one birth a year. So this makes pigs the most energy-efficient animal. In terms of meat production, they turn about 35% of the energy in their feed into meat. This makes them three times as efficient as sheep, and five times as efficient as cattle. And unlike these other grazers, they can eat human trash. So pigs turn 16% of their food energy into protein, compared to 13% for feedlot cattle and 1% for free-range cattle. So there are three common pathways to animal domestication. On one extreme is the commensalism pathway, where you have a free-ranging species that interacts on their own terms with the human world, but still ends up changing as a result. The other extreme is a directed pathway, where humans have total control over reproduction, you know, which animals get paired with each other and when, which animals get castrated, which animals get eaten. And then in the middle is a prey pathway, which we'll talk about more in a second. So pigs took the commensal pathway. So they're all the way on one side of the spectrum where they essentially had total free will in as much as that applies to pigs. They seem to have been attracted to human garbage. You know, as we'll see during this period, even pigs that were interacting with human society were basically allowed to wander around. Humans didn't exert much control over pig reproduction. So over time, pigs would get used to hanging around people. So now both of them would have access to an emergency food source. Of course, pigs have access to human garbage and humans have access to pigs. So over time, people would start managing pig herds. They would capture females and piglets and hunt adult males. This isn't especially hard since females make nests for their piglets and then leave them alone to go out foraging. So if you want to raise a pig from an infant, you can just go to the nest and take the piglet. This might be why immature boars are so common during the pre-pottery Neolithic A. It's much easier to steal a baby pig than it is to fight and kill an adult boar. We also see some fetal pigs, maybe from killing pregnant females. So it seems that early farmers in this kind of mountain region that we're looking at, around Talanchemi, kept female pigs for breeding, but allowed them to roam around and forage instead of keeping them in pens. 
So this is really not that labor intensive. You know, you have a pig that will imprint on you and trust you and at the very least come back to you for your garbage. You know, it can wander around and mate with adult male boars without you having to raise those adult male boars or deal with them in your settlement. And of course, the pig will give birth to a large amount of piglets, which gives you a steady population of domestic pigs to live in your village. And this seems to be what Holland Chami was doing. So in the late 9000s BCE, they're in this kind of oak and pistachio ecosystem that is perfect for pigs. You know, we're at the same time in the same general region as Gebekli Tepe, which we looked at last time. People are not fully transitioned into a farming lifestyle. They're still hunting and gathering wild plants for a few hours a day. So in this situation, pigs are a reliable and efficient source of domestic meat. They are very little effort to maintain, and they enable the settlement to grow and become more complex because, of course, you have a backup source of food. So during the earliest period of occupation of Helen Chemi, these kind of proto-domestic pigs seem to have supplemented a practice of hunting wild pigs. We have evidence that wild boars that were hunted and killed in the wild were also butchered in the wild, with only the meatiest parts of the animal brought back to the village. But later on, the village's relationship to pigs changed. So during the last period at Halan Chemi, around 8300 BCE, during the early pre-pottery Neolithic B, pigs became a bigger part of people's diet. More of them were culled upon reaching maturity, and more of them were butchered near the village. So we have more complete bodies of pigs instead of just immediate parts of the animal. So this looks a lot like domestication. And in this region, they don't have domestic sheep, goats, or cattle yet. So pigs may have been their first domestic livestock, you know, in this region around Halan Chemi. At this point, society is not yet centered on intensive agriculture. You know, even if people and pigs are eating the same acorns and pistachios, there's still enough for everyone in the forest, and the forest will sustain itself. But pigs are omnivores, and they'll eat just about everything, including grain, which is nutritious for both humans and pigs. So once you're keeping domestic grain fields, and you have pigs that are wandering around freely, the pigs are going to go and eat your grain. They can destroy months of work in a few hours. So you're going to have to keep your pigs penned up, meaning that they can't forage, meaning that you have to feed them and grow all of their food yourself. And of course, if they can't wander around, they can't mate with wild boars anymore. So if you want to keep raising pigs, you also have to raise domestic males, which are larger and stronger, more dangerous, more aggressive, and so on. And of course, now you also have to grow more food to feed the males, to breed to the females, to grow more pigs, and so on. So pig herding is going to continue across the region, even after people develop agriculture. But over time, we see that these kinds of free-range pigs are gradually outnumbered by sheep, goats, and cattle, whose behavior is easier to control. And we also see pigs in pens, which of course are still efficient in terms of meat, but of course you have to feed them all the food that they're eating. So much for the brief golden age of raising semi-domestic pigs during the pre-pottery Neolithic A period. So moving to Asikli Hiryuk, this is in south-central Anatolia, far west of the other sites we'll be looking at today. It's the earliest known pre-pottery Neolithic site this far west, and it's much closer to Chachalharyuk, which we'll look at later this season, than it is to, you know, Gerbekli Tepe. And because of this, it was not involved in the pre-pottery Neolithic A innovations of, you know, gradual experimentation with grain farming and so on. So notably, at Asikli Hiryuk, we see evidence for independent sheep and goat domestication around the same time as goat domestication in Iran, which we'll look at in episode 5. So essentially, what we see are multiple different peoples in multiple different places, each experimenting with domestication in their own different ways. Here, we see people who had been broad-spectrum foragers, that is, collecting food from a wide variety of different places, gradually become full-time animal herders. So we're going to start here around 8400 BCE, when Asikli Hiryuk was a small settlement, probably only partially sedentary. So in other words, they hadn't fully abandoned mobile foraging. Their houses were round, wattle, and daub buildings, partially dug into the ground. In later phases, they lived in permanent mud brick houses, when they had become fully sedentary. At first, these were oval-shaped and partially dug into the ground, before they were replaced by rectangular buildings built fully above ground. Asikli Hiryuk had the oldest known free threshing wheat, or naked wheat, in highland Anatolia. But unlike the core domestication area, it didn't become the center of their diet. They were definitely in contact with the east, but their interaction was not intensive. And we have no evidence of obsidian trade, even though this village was only 20 or 30 kilometers from the source of obsidian. So we see a wide range of animal skeletons at the site, both large and small wild prey. So with the earliest layer, sheep and goats make up only 27% of all animals. But by the late 7,000s, sheep and goats made up 81% of all meat. In other words, consumption of sheep and goats tripled over about 1,000 years. The dominant animal was always sheep. Over time, the ratio of sheep to goats increased from 4 to 1 to 10 to 1. By the end, we will see a similar ratio to that at Chachalhargyuk 1,000 years later. And we'll see a similar outcome in Mesopotamia later on. Obviously, sheep can produce better fibers than goats can. So Asiklihiruk is in the native range of both wild species. That is both the mouflon, the wild ancestor of sheep, and the bezoar goat, the wild ancestor of domestic goats. Both species came under human management starting around 8400 BCE. Looking at sheep, the wild mouflon is native to the highland areas of Anatolia and Iran, and it was widely hunted before domestication. Rams start to breed around three years old, and ewes start breeding around four. Both sexes can reproduce until about eight years old. Sheep generally give birth to one lamb a year after 150-day gestation. 
Before sheep were bred to produce wool, as we know it today, they grew dark, coarse hair called kemp, which they shed in the summer. So it's possible to gather fibers from the shed winter coat and use it to make felt, but the fibers themselves were still too short to spin into thread. So just as people are artificially selecting for specific traits of grains, for example, the project with breeding sheep is to breed longer and longer fibers that eventually grow into what we know as wool. So in modern domestic sheep, wool obviously is longer, finer fibers that grow year-round. They don't fall off in warmer weather. This may be an adaptation to colder climates. So essentially, shepherds were probably selecting for longer hair over thousands and thousands of years so they could spin wool into thread and use it to weave clothes and blankets. This is much less labor-intensive than making linen from flax fibers, as they had been beforehand. But of course, animal fibers decay quickly, so there's no way to know exactly when or where the first woolly sheep appeared. There's no evidence of woolly sheep or wool processing during the pre-pottery Neolithic, and some evidence suggests that we don't see woolly sheep until around 4000 BCE in, like, Russia. So, obviously, outside our scope. So earlier I mentioned three different pathways of animal domestication. Pigs are commensal, I mentioned, with a minimum of human involvement. The other extreme is a directed pathway with total human control. But between these two extremes, I mentioned a prey pathway. So this is when animals are sometimes penned up inside human settlements and sometimes allowed to roam. Undesirable animals could be castrated and or culled, that is, killed and eaten. They could be sometimes allowed to interbreed with wild animals, you know, to increase genetic diversity, although this interbreeding can sometimes undo the work of directed breeding. So there are three stages to this domestication. The earliest stage was when people would catch baby animals, raise them for a while, you know, the period of time when they grow the fastest, and then eat them when they're done with that. The next phase would be continuing to capture baby animals, combined with limited breeding. And then the third stage would be a large-scale herding economy based on an entirely captive population. So I mentioned that first stage. This is when you catch and raise animals in the short term. So this is just an addition to their pre-existing foraging economy. So, you know, instead of going out to hunt, you would essentially go and just capture a baby animal. And instead of salting or smoking your meat for later, you would store it for later by keeping it alive. It's a very low investment and a quick return on that investment. And of course, if you capture a baby animal, it's likely to imprint on humans, because all of these livestock species are social creatures, which gives you less trouble, at least logistically, if not morally. So we can see the second phase in the skeletal record. So we continue to have, you know, very young animals, and we start to see more and more fully grown adult animals. People are starting to commit to long-term breeding. So we have more adults as people capture babies and then raise them to full adulthood. You know, this is still a larger return on your investment, although you are keeping it after the fastest period of growth. So the biggest difference here from later periods is that more males are killed as mature adults. This might be because a large, powerful animal of its, you know, full adult size with horns had ritual importance. We have plenty of evidence of that from earlier periods that hunted male animals have lots of ritual importance. But over time, what we see is that they're killing males younger and younger, you know, especially when you're feeding them. This is the most efficient use of fodder. Again, you feed them when they grow the fastest. When that period of the fastest growth ends, then you kill them and eat them. Usually that coincides with the beginning of their sexual maturity. You can breed them if you want, or if you don't want to breed them, you can just kill them and eat them. So for most of this site's history, 60% of males were killed before seven months old. Some females died before seven months old, but not many. But during the last level of the settlement, 80% of both sexes were allowed to live past seven months old. Also, the percentage of unborn sheep and goat remains, or fetal remains, increases over time from 17% to 35% by the early 7000s BCE. This may be because living conditions for these animals were more crowded, leading to less sanitary conditions and more disease. You know, people were still kind of figuring this out, and they might not have immediately recognized that keeping a bunch of animals penned together all the time would increase, you know, disease transmission. And then we see that the number of dead babies drops suddenly during the last phase probably because they got better at raising these animals, causing more animals to live for longer. We have very few fetal remains, except a couple pigs, all of which indicates that people were involved in sheep and goat reproduction. You know, they're not just capturing existing animals anymore, but they're actively breeding them and raising them from birth to adulthood to eat them. So in all periods, animals ate wild grasses. In other words, people weren't feeding them crops they grew themselves. They were taking these animals out of the pens to go and graze you know, out in the pastures. We can tell where their pens were because of high concentrations of phytoliths from animal dung. We could tell differences in diet between sheep, which were grazers, and goats, which were browsers, and the amount and concentration of these phytoliths increases over time. We have a similar situation with the salts from their urine, which increase by orders of magnitude over time. The amount might have increased as much as a thousand times over a thousand years. Eventually, they moved animal enclosures off the top of the settlement mount and built houses there instead, probably because of a combination of a growing human population and smelly animals that they were probably beginning to contract diseases from. Speaking of which, as this population grew, the town was about four hectares by the late 7,000 BCE. The amount of animal protein consumed per person did not decrease. In other words, they raised more and more animals as more and more people lived in the town. 
In episode five, I'll talk about genetic evidence that all modern goats are descended from a single domestication event in Iran at Ganjdare, around the same time that we're talking about here, the late 8000s BCE. So essentially, we have evidence of the same thing happening with the same species in two different places. There were a few explanations for this. It might have started in one place and spread to the other fairly quickly. Archaeology wouldn't be able to tell if it happened within a century or two. It would look pretty much simultaneous. There might have been two independent domestication events, but only the Iranian one stuck around. Or because the goat genetics that we'll talk about from Iran are Y-chromosomal, this may be because domestic male goats from Iran mated with domestic female goats from Asikli Hiryuk, and modern goats in both regions have the male line from Iran and the female line from whichever independent domestication event they were closest to. Or, most likely, these are two isolated data points, and people across the region were experimenting with different species. So Highland Anatolia and Highland Iran have similar climates and ecosystems, and there was probably a fair amount of migration and intermarriage and trade and so on between them. But these are region-wide trends. So by the 7000s BCE, we see intensive animal herding across the Fertile Crescent in Palestine, southeastern Anatolia, Iran, and so on. In the upper Euphrates region, sheep and goats made up less than 10% of animals between 10,000 and 8,000 BCE. But at some sites during the 7000s BCE, more than two-thirds of animals were sheep and goats. So moving to our last village for today, Navali Chori. This is a village on the upper Euphrates, about 50 kilometers north of Gerbekli Tepe, about 30 miles. This village was occupied for just a few centuries during the early pre-pottery Neolithic B, or the late 8000s BCE, so we can get a snapshot of a particular stage in the development of agriculture, specifically with the domestication of einkorn wheat. So we can see the transition from wild-type einkorn, which they either gather it in the wild or cultivate it without artificial selection, to clearly domestic einkorn, which we can see has been genetically engineered to have bigger seeds. They would have stored this grain in a storage building with rows of two to three rooms. They may have used this to store wild grains and then continued to use it when they were bidding to cultivate and domestically grow grain. The houses themselves have stone foundations. So underneath the floor, we see channels running perpendicular to the main axis of the house. This may be for ventilation or for drainage. In both cases, it would be wise if you're storing any kind of grain in your house to make sure that it doesn't get too mildewy. So the village was founded around 8400 BCE. The oldest levels have domestic einkorn as well as barley and rye. We see the same types here that we see at Gerbekli Tepe that will soon be common across the region. We also see other crops like peas, lentils, and chickpeas, grass peas, bitter vetch, and horse bean. So alongside these early domesticated plants to continue to gather wild plants, including, as I mentioned, wild einkorn, it's also possible that wild einkorn may have been a weed in domestic emmer fields. Like I mentioned last time, they were farming in the natural habitat of both wild species, so it wouldn't be unexpected for wild einkorn seeds to blow into a field of domestic emmer and then have both seeds harvested alongside each other. In terms of location, the village is ideally situated for both foragers and early farmers. They have access to grassland, forest, and river ecosystems. You know, the landscape is not mandating that they switch to cereal agriculture full-time. Compared to Gebekli Tepe, we see fewer wild asses here and more wild goats. So these may be hunting practices that carried over into early domestication practices, you know, favoring wild goats and eventually domesticating them. Also worth noting that Navali Chari has among the earliest evidence of domestic sheep. Domestic goats will be introduced slightly later. The age and sex of the skeletons here reflect a domestic herd, not hunted game. But culling patterns were not centered on young males yet. In terms of culture, like I said, this is part of the same culture as Gebekli Tepe. The monumental site was still used well into the pre-Pottery Neolithic B when the site was occupied. So these villagers may have helped build some of the monuments at Gebekli Tepe and participated in the parties afterwards. We see a public building here. Inside, we see two freestanding T-shaped pillars, three meters tall, 10 feet. These, like the pillars at Gebekli Tepe, are anthropomorphic and decorated with animal motifs. We see the same iconography. We also see more pillars built into the walls. So what we're looking at here might be a smaller version of the same kind of monumental pits that we see at Gebekli Tepe. And in fact, we may see evidence that the outward ring of pillars may have been supports for a wall instead of just freestanding stone pillars. As with the domestic houses, we see channels underneath the buildings for drainage. These are similar to the terrazzo floor building at Chiger Nu. In public buildings at both sites, we see traces of fire and human blood. So clearly some kind of ritual going on there. We also see zoomorphic scepters, in other words, maces carved into the shape of animals. These also show up at Gebekli Tepe and the nearby village of Abu Huraira. Now, this concept of a scepter or a mace is extremely important in the history of political power and might indicate that someone here had some kind of power that could be symbolized by a stick that you could hold. We also see thin-walled stone cups and bowls of the same type found at Gebekli Tepe. One limestone bowl depicts two people with raised arms, and between them is an image of a turtle. This has been interpreted as a dancing scene. We also find about 700 clay figurines. So most of these depict humans, male and female, in about equal numbers. They tend to be about five centimeters tall, and they were fired at 600 degrees Celsius, which is interesting because pottery won't be invented for another couple thousand years, but it does indicate that people had a knowledge of how to fire clay before they were making clay pots. Also worth pointing out that Egypt did have pottery during this period. 
So some of that technology may have moved from Egypt into the Near East. As these figurines get more common, the symbolic depictions on the T-shaped pillars disappear. So this may signal a shift towards more mobile representations. In other words, you know, a shift from large permanent monuments to, you know, small, easy to create objects that might symbolize the same thing. We also see evidence of a head cult. So we have a limestone statue of a head bigger than life size. We have burials of heads without bodies. And one head was buried with a flint dagger that they used to sever it. We also see figurines of vultures, similar to the vultures that we see depicted on pillars at Gebekli Tepe. And at other Neolithic sites, for example, we'll look at Chatal Hiruk, vultures may be associated with head removal. Obviously, vultures feed on dead people, and there may be some kind of symbolic importance there. Who knows? So earlier, I mentioned the aurochs, or the wild bull. This is the wild ancestor of all modern cattle. It's native to all of temperate Eurasia and northern Africa. During prehistoric periods, it would be the largest and the most dangerous game, and therefore the greatest reward for hunters. It was extremely symbolically significant and often used for important feasts. So taurine cattle is the name for the Western Eurasian type of cattle. This was originally domesticated in the Near East and then spread across the Western half of Eurasia. It's not to be confused with the zebu in Southeastern Asia or Indocene cattle, which resulted from a separate domestication event. So as for this domestication event of taurine cattle, genetics point to a single event in the mid to late 8,000s BCE. Domestic cattle show up at Chaigernu around 8200 BCE. They might have showed up earlier in northwestern Syria. Genetic evidence from the ancient Near East shows that only about 80 different wild females were incorporated into the gene pool. So we're looking at probably a small and concentrated domestication event, more so than a large region-wide process. A 2005 article by Daniel Helmer and colleagues was an analysis of cattle bones from this region. From the beginning of the pre-pottery Neolithic A period, the amount of hunted cattle appears fairly constant. We don't see any evidence of overhunting. During the PPNA, cattle make up between 5 to 20% of animal bones. But at early PPNB Murray Bet in northern Syria, this percentage rose to 30 to 40%, and these cattle are larger than later domestic cattle. But the size of the animals can't tell us when domestication started. In general, domesticated animals are smaller than their wild ancestors. Combined with other evidence, we see that managed herds of animals don't shrink immediately. In other words, when we see smaller animals, that only shows us that they've been domesticated for a while. It doesn't tell us exactly when that started. The size reduction is more severe in males than females. This is probably because of artificial selection. So if you're raising domestic herds full-time, you need bulls to keep breeding, and it's in your interest to select for smaller, weaker, and less dangerous males so that you don't get gored. This, over time, leads to lower sexual dimorphism. At Jerf el-Ahmar in Syria, we see that three-quarters of cattle are female. This makes sense when you look at culling practices. You know, females are less dangerous, and they're also obviously the ones who give birth. We have no evidence of dairy yet, but of course milk will be important in later periods. Over the next 2,000 years, we see cattle spread to Cyprus by the late 8,000s BCE, notable because they had to put them on a boat. Also, western Anatolia, southern Italy, and central Europe. By the 6,000s BCE, domestic cattle are common across western Eurasia and North Africa. So, we are going to finish up today by looking at domestic legumes. So, legumes are the family of plants that includes beans and peanuts and so on. For our purposes, we'll be looking at lentils, peas, and chickpeas primarily. So, all legumes have a symbiotic relationship with rhizobacteria, which converts nitrogen in the air into ammonia in the soil. All plants need ammonia, and the plant produces carbohydrates that feed the bacteria. So, there's a nice little mutualist process going on here. This used to be the primary way to feed plants nitrogen. And, of course, this is important because when you grow grain or other crops, it sucks the nitrogen out of the soil and eventually depletes it. So, you need a way to capture nitrogen from the atmosphere and put it back into the soil so you can grow more crops in that soil. So clover is another legume. It's edible by humans, but its usual use in Eurasia has been to plant in a field after you plant grain in it, you know, during the fallow period. This fixes the nitrogen in the soil, and it also serves as grazing land for herds. So you know, your herds will come, they'll eat the clover. The clover has already fixed nitrogen in the soil by virtue of growing, but also the animal's manure also fertilizes the land. And of course, when you go to grow grain in that field again, you have the nitrogen fixed in the soil from the clover, you have the nitrogen from the manure, and of course, you can grow grain again. So as with other crops, farmers are gradually selecting for more beneficial traits. So comparing domestic legumes to wild ancestors, farmers appear to have doubled the amount of tryptophan, which is an amino acid. All meat and several plants contain tryptophan, including soybean, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, and pumpkin seeds. Turkey has about the same amount of tryptophan as chicken, beef, and pork, and much less than cheddar cheese or sesame seeds. So Thanksgiving dinner does not have more tryptophan than the same weight in burgers. It's possible your relatives are just lazy. Tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin. It helps regulate your mood and induce happiness. It can also help with cognitive ability, like curiosity and problem solving. And increased tryptophan can lead to higher ovulation rates, which can lead to more children. Agriculture gives people access to more nutritional resources, which is a kind of positive feedback loop. You know, more nutrition means more people, means more farm labor to grow more food, etc. Also, blood tryptophan levels drop during lactation. 
leading to decreased ovulation rates, leading to a higher demand for tryptophan. So higher tryptophan and higher fertility is another positive feedback loop. And of course, I mentioned that it helps with cognitive tasks, including emotional processing. It can help lower aggression and make you more receptive, both of which can help with conflict resolution in increasingly large and complex societies. And of course, as these societies are growing larger and gradually becoming more complex, these are problems that people have to learn to solve. So starting with lentils, wild lentils are native to all of Southwestern Asia, and they were widely gathered before the Neolithic. They're extremely nutritious. Their protein content is about 25%, so it's more than twice as much as barley and almost three times as much as wheat. We found hundreds of lentil seeds gathered from pre-pottery Neolithic A sites around 9000 BCE, for example, at Jerf el Ahmar, which also has some of the oldest evidence of cereal cultivation. We see lots of wild-type lentils with small seeds. These were likely cultivated, but not yet domestic. So, you know, lentils are not especially common in the Near East. The yield of wild lentils only tends to be 10 to 20 seeds per plant, and only 10% of lentil seeds sowed end up growing in wild conditions. So probably what's happening is they were gathering wild lentils from the wild and planting them in alluvial soil nearby their village. You know, the more they introduce lentils into artificial environments that they're manipulating soil to grow in, over time that process is by itself going to select for lentils to grow better in those conditions. And they also would have selected four more seeds per plant. We can't tell exactly when that happened, but it would have been one of these traits that they're selecting for. At the site of Yifta El in northern Palestine, around 8,000 BCE, we see a large horde of carbonized lentils, around 1.4 million seeds. These were contaminated by seeds of rough corn bed straw, which is a common weed in domestic lentil fields, which you know, shows us that they were probably growing them in domestic fields. By the late 7,000s, charred lentil seeds appear in most pre-pottery Neolithic B villages. These are still morphologically wild, but they're always associated with domestic wheat and barley. So even though the genetic changes have not kicked in yet, they're being grown in a domestic context. The number one trait selected for by Neolithic farmers, as with grain, was that the seeds stay on the plant and they don't break open and disperse seeds like in the wild. The second trait selected for by farmers was seed dormancy. In other words, you don't want your lentils to germinate at inopportune times so they don't waste your seeds. So essentially humans are putting lentils on an annual schedule so that they'll be easier to harvest alongside cereals. So both of these traits are controlled by single recessive genes, which would not be that hard to control when humans have total control over every aspect of reproduction. The third trait they were selected for was seed size. So of course, lentils with bigger seeds are more likely to survive the threshing process and be replanted in the fields. Lentil seed size is controlled by a more complex set of genes, which may explain why larger seeds don't appear until the mid 5000s BCE in places like Iran and Cyprus. Do they have spices at this point, like to make the lentil soup good? Or are they just like, this is just something to fill my belly? Like, I'm, I'm kind of wondering where, like, I get, I get like food as survival, but where does food as for enjoyment come onto the table? That's a lot harder to track in the archaeology. Because, you know, the way we know that they were cultivating these plants, you know, at these times, is usually it's when like a specific seed, I forget what the word is, but it falls into the fire and it gets cooked accidentally and left somewhere. So, you know, it's not like we have remnants of whole meals that we can look at because, you know, all the organic stuff decays. I forget that you're actually, you're working off of like not written word. You're working off of like just archaeology. I'm just wondering when choice is going to start playing a role here. But I don't know, maybe that, of course, that has to be second to survival. Well, and the other thing that we probably will never know about is the kind of herbs that, A, are never domesticated, you know, so we don't know about them because they're currently a major cash crop, and B, like the seeds aren't as visible, so they wouldn't show up in the archaeological record. So, you know, they're probably using lots of herbs that we will never know about. That's crazy. That's fun. I like that. Yeah, well, yeah especially because at this point, they're much closer to the time when they actually were foraging and when they would have been intimately familiar with all of the foods in the area, the plants. So, I mean, yeah, they're almost certainly not just making porridge with, you know, unflavored wheat glop or whatever. Where does like cooking come into this? So we don't really have direct evidence of what food they would have made as far as like how they would have prepared it. By about 7,000 BC, they do have pottery. So that makes cooking a whole lot easier. Yeah. And now that, now that you mention it, you're right. You can't really cook with liquids. You just kind of put, let me see. You're talking about legumes. Last time was cereals. I'm just imagining somebody putting like milk in their lentils. And I'm just like, that's weird. That does not sound super pleasant. But like, you got to experiment before you come up with like a good recipe that you pass on for millions of years, thousands of years, I guess, not millions so far. So moving to chickpeas. So I mentioned that in the climate we're dealing with, the majority of rain falls in the winter. More than 80% of all precipitation falls between December and February. So as a result, almost all wild ancestors of domestic crops germinate in autumn, flower at the end of winter, and mature at the end of summer. So because of this, June to September would be the off-season for farming, so farmers would have time off during the hottest months. Of course, there would be other work to do, but they wouldn't be working in the fields as much. 
The same is true for the wild ancestor of chickpeas, otherwise known as garbanzo beans. But unlike other crops, chickpeas abruptly disappeared from the archaeological record everywhere west of Iran for about 3,000 years starting in the early 6,000s BCE, and it's worth asking why. So around 8,000 BCE, chickpeas went west. They crossed the Hellespont from Anatolia into southeastern Europe, where they would have encountered the Ascocata fungus, which is the only known blight that affects wild chickpeas and is only native to Bulgaria. So this blight happens to be seed-borne, it can travel long distances in seeds, and it spreads via splashing rainwater. So a small infection during a rainy winter can destroy an entire harvest, and the results could be devastating. So the fungus lives in soil for decades, so the blight would happen every year in any particular field, and it would only have to show up in a single plant to spread again throughout the entire field. So after a while, people appear to have just given up. You know, lentils and peas are nutritionally similar, and they would be able to survive the blight. So eventually they just gave up on planting chickpeas and kept their summer breaks, this would only change when people started to import summer crops from India, where the climate is suited to plants sown in the spring and harvested in the summer. The introduction of these summer crops to the Near East coincides with the institutionalization of manual farm labor. That is, the working class, created in the 3000s BCE, loses their off-season and has to work in the hot weather. So stay tuned for the Uruk period in the 3000s BCE. All right, moving on to peas. Peas are also legumes. Their protein content is around 22%. Genetic analysis has shown that domestic peas are closest to wild peas in northeastern Anatolia, or the southern Caucasus. So the first trait that farmers seem to have selected for was the ability of the pea to stay in its pod, which of course makes it possible to harvest in the first place. The next trait would be size. Domestic peas are twice as big as wild peas, so farmers were able to increase the size from 4 millimeters diameter to 8 millimeters. And as with lentils, they selected for non-dormant seeds, so essentially they genetically engineered peas to grow better after being planted by hand. As with lentils, this may not be intentional because this kind of trait would select for itself, you know, in these conditions over time. And the last legume we're going to look at is vetch. These are a similar size and shape to lentils. And as with einkorn and ember, as we've been talking about, when the weed grows in similar conditions to the actual domestic crop that it's growing in the fields of, and when the plants themselves are similar, they are often harvested together and processed together. So in the Neolithic, we often find vetch alongside lentils. There's no evidence that it was farmed intensively, so it was probably a weed in lentil fields. Later on, it'll be domesticated as livestock fodder, because like other legumes, it can fix nitrogen in the soil. And of course, as with clover, when you have livestock grazing in vetch fields, their manure is going to fertilize the field, which of course makes it better for grain farming. It's another way to put nitrogen back into the soil. So that's that on legume domestication in the pre-pottery Neolithic. So previously, Telepinu ran away from home and took all good things with him, resulting in a cosmic crisis. But the mother goddess sent a bee that found him lying in a marsh with a swamp plant growing over his body. So in a way, he's kind of trapped within primordial nature himself. Essentially, he's kind of crawled back into the womb of the earth. In a 2010 paper, Romina Delacasa wrote, quote, This space appears as a welcoming environment, as a place that Telepinu neither tries nor wishes to abandon, as proven by the fact that leaving it makes him shout, thunder, and storm angrily. See, when you said that he was trapped within a swamp plant growing over his body, what I actually imagined was like him taking a nap with a swamp plant as his blanket. Right. No, exactly. He's he's there willingly. Yeah. So trying to wake him up from his nap, he's of course going to be grouchy. So just as he has stopped reproduction and birth in the human world, Telepinu himself matures backwards. We see him throwing tantrums and running away towards a state prior to his own birth. Just like Telepinu has aged backwards, humanity has essentially regressed by forgetting the Neolithic revolution by becoming unable to farm. So in order to restore order, time needs to move forward again. So he needs to undergo a birth, an infancy, and a rite of passage in order to return to godhood. So Delicasa continues, quote, Telepinu was forced to be reborn of the forces of nature in order to give new life to the world he had left, end quote. And that will require a goddess and a complex ritual to renew this god to glory, similar to the other Bronze Age stories of both Osiris and Baal. So eventually, the gods call for Kamushepa, who is a goddess of magic and healing. She performs a lengthy ritual to separate him from his own anger so that he can be reborn as his former self. So they undid his going back to the womb. Right. Which is being reborn? Yeah, being, yeah. Yeah, because when the bee finds him, the bee stings him awake, and he is angry about that. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, exactly. So the ritual is not only restoring him to the cosmos, but also kind of like removing him from this infantile tantrum state and, you know, restoring his good judgment. So here is part of the middle of this incantation. Here lies chaff. Let his heart and soul be separated like it. Here lies an ear of grain. Let it attract his heart and his soul. Here lies sesame. Let his heart and his soul be comforted by it. Here lie figs. Just as figs are sweet, even so, let Telepinu's heart and soul become sweet. This sounds like something a mother would tell their upset child. Like, I'm imagining, like, a mother with, like, a crying baby. 
trying to soothe them. It, do, it really does have that vibe. Just as the olive holds oil within it, as the grape holds wine within it, so hold, Telepinu, in your heart and in your soul, good feelings towards the king. Sounds a little manipulative. Well, yes. Just like on the surface level. <laughs> well, you know, because, yeah, the original problem, the text is broken, but the original problem was some kind of issue between him and his father. Mm-hmm. In order for him to be reintegrated back into the cosmos, he has to have good feelings towards his father, who is the king of the gods. And definitely not try to overthrow him or uh, kill him and take his place or anything like that. So Tarhuna, his father, the rain god, is ultimately the cause of agriculture. And of course, the human king in a Bronze Age society would have jurisdiction over the conditions of agriculture. And of course, every monarchy also relies on local farmers paying taxes, as opposed to moving away and herding in the hills, which is a fairly common occurrence in pre-modern societies, that certain people escape their agricultural lifestyle, move away from the state that they owe taxes to, essentially gain their freedom, but in the process they lose the goods of civilization and access to the things that the state provides. So the goddess Kamrushepa offers the fruits of previous harvests, essentially ensuring future agricultural wealth by sacrificing current agricultural wealth, like grain, figs, sesame seeds, olives, and grapes. Of course, bread, oil, and wine would be among the most important food products, and oil and wine especially would be major export products. So by using these domesticated crops for their ritual or magical purposes, Kamrushepa is able to restore natural birth. Telepinu's anger is allayed. He takes the goods of civilization back from the wilderness and restores them to their rightful place at the center of the Hittite world. This story of Telepinu's disappearance and return is part of a pattern of mythological narratives spanning the Near East, where the god who represents agriculture disappears, bringing famine to the world. That would be the winter, when all of the seeds are in the ground and people don't have any access to the bounty of nature. And when he returns in the spring, that would represent the harvest. So essentially, Telepinu represents the harvest itself. He is a miraculous source of food in god form. His presence brings wealth and stability, and his absence brings hunger, death, and chaos. He disappears in the winter, and he won't properly reappear without a complicated magical procedure involving seeds, burying things, bees, and a whole lot of praying. And if you do all that right, he reappears in the spring. He's born out of the earth itself in all his former glory, as if winter had never happened. So, Kamrushepa's ritual is successful. We see the return of agriculture and livestock, and a healthy king ruling a healthy kingdom. So, to summarize, he was acting like a baby. Mm -hmm. So his family did a ritual and was like, do not be a baby anymore. Also love your dad. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and it worked. And he's not going to overthrow his dad yet, growth mindset. Right. <laughs> he has to eventually, according to the cycle. Right. Well, yeah. And of course, his dad became king by overthrowing two other male figures and replacing them as king of the gods. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So the end of this myth kind of ends that threat to Tarhun's royal reign. And reifies him as the patriarchal father of the household that includes also Telepinu, the agriculture god. Telepinu came home to his house and cared again for his land. The mist let go of the windows. The smoke let go of the house. The altars were set right for the gods. The hearth let go of the log. He let the sheep go to the fold. He let the cattle go to the pen. The mother tended her child. The ewe tended her lamb. The cow tended her calf. Also, Telepinu tended the king and the queen and provided them with enduring life and vigor. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>